0: listening to Amphibicast. This week's episode of Amphibicast is sponsored by the Active Conservation Alliance. The Active Conservation Alliance is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization promoting ecosystem conservation and restoration, the sustainable use, and the welfare for wildlife and human communities living in balance. With a special focus on dart frogs, Many of the Alliance's efforts work towards the conservation and reintroduction of wild dendrobatids into their natural habitat. To get involved and to donate, please visit ActiveConservationAlliance.org or follow the links in the show description. You can also text ACA to 61094. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. You're listening to Amphibicast. I'm your host, Andrew Bates, And uh, this week I have a terrific guest. I have Rachel Keefe. And uh, she is a postdoctoral researcher, and she recently completed a paper titled "The Analysis of Feeding Mechanics in Toads." It's it's an amazing paper about the the mechanics of uh, of the tongue thrust, I guess you'd call it, in the uh, in toads. And we're going to discuss the paper piece by piece. We're going to discuss some of her background, but um, of course, before I get into that, thank you to everyone for the nice re- five star reviews. Always appreciate that. Uh, on po- on uh, what is it? Um, Spotify, we're up to about 89 five-star reviews, which is pretty cool. So if you guys could get me up to 100, uh, maybe we'll do something special. I don't know what. And um, of course, thanks to all the patrons on Patreon. If you want to support the show, a great way to do so is to become a patron on Patreon. I have tiers as low as a dollar a month, up to a $5 a month tier, which will get you a shout out at the beginning of an upcoming episode. And uh, be sure to follow the link tree for the links to In-Situ Ecosystems. I'm an affiliate. Make a purchase through that link. You'll get a 10% discount. And uh, also follow the links to the Active Conservation Alliance as well. They're a uh, sponsor of the show. And uh, anything else, of course, there's the merchandise store if you want to get some shirts or T-shirts or things like that. So all that out of the way, all that nonsense. Uh, Rachel, welcome. How are you doing tonight? Thank you for uh, being with us.
1: Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me.
0: It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Yeah, I, I came across the article in uh, my news feed and uh, I thought followed the links and i was able to find the actual journal article in um i think it's uh integrative uh, organismal biology um yep, that's I, the one yeah I, I want to get into everything in the paper but i was wondering if you could kind of give us a little background about yourself like what what were some of your first in, uh, experiences with amphibians or the natural world and what led you to where you are today
1: <laughs> yeah it's it's kind of a long story <laughs> Um, but I mean, I've been into frogs since I was, uh, you know, as early as I can remember. One of my earliest memories is, you know, catching toads, you know, drawing pictures of frogs. I actually talked to my parents and they said that, you know, I wanted to keep frogs when I was six years old. So, uh, I've loved them for a long time. Um, and when I was younger, I kind of thought that I wanted, I knew I wanted to work with animals, but you know, when you're really young, you don't really know the different careers that there are for working with animals. Um, so I just slapped down vet, you know, if someone asked me what I wanted to be, but I I've always had this terrible allergy to cats and dogs. So (laughs) I I kind of figured out that wasn't going to work. Um, but fortunately when I was reading about frogs, you know, I came across the word herpetologist. Um, and then I knew, you know, that's what I wanted to do. So I've been, you know, all of my career choices have been about, you know, going to UMass, there was a herpetology uh, professor there. Uh, and then I realized I wanted to teach herpetology. So then you have to get a PhD. Um, so I did that. <laughs> and now I'm here post um, you know, lining up for uh, trying to find a tenure track job somewhere. Um, but it's been frogs forever, <laughs> basically.
0: No, those are all good choices. I, def- I definitely <laughs> support those choices. That's great. so why study amphibian morphology and are there any features that are really unique to amphibians that you wouldn't find in any other organisms like what's what's so special about them and why study them
1: Oh man, they're so cool. <laughs> um, so when I'm usually talking to people about amphibians, you know, some people think, you know, at first they don't know what an amphibian is because they think, you know, salamanders are lizards, right, is what they say. And I say, well, you know, amphibians are pretty special, usually because the first thing I talk about is their skin. So one of the features that unites amphibians as a clade, so salamanders, frogs, and sicilians, is that they have this really special granular skin um, where it's easy for water and different um chemicals to pass easily through their skins. They don't have scales like reptiles or leathery eggs like reptiles. Um, And they're different from fishes because they have four legs. um, Or they did. (laughs) Even Sicilians had four legs um, back in the fossil record. But they're really special. Um, and frogs in particular are really, you know, there's no other animal that looks like a frog does. (laughs) You know, they've got these really short vertebrae. They've got, um, you know, these ginormous back legs. They're super good at jumping. Um, there's just lots about them. That's special. Even their, you know, their life cycle is another feature that I tell people, you know, you have, Um, amphibians typically start their life in the water. Uh, they usually transform and go onto lands, but sometimes they don't, sometimes they go onto land and go back. So they have this really like fascinating, um, life history that I think, I mean, the questions you can ask with amphibians are some of the coolest questions I think an evolutionary biologist can ask.
0: Yeah. The morphology it's, it's funny because I feel like if you draw a frog even if you're not artistically inclined whatsoever pretty much anybody on the planet can can pick out a frog because of that unique morphology and um yeah
1: definitely yeah
0: yeah i think i was um i, I know that you you did some research with david blackburn who i, I had on the show uh, quite a while back and one of the things i think it was i think it was him he said that really stuck with me was just that 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 body shape is just so universally frog
1: yeah, a frog is a frog is a frog is what Dave loves to say. <laughs>
0: yeah. So, uh as far as the paper goes. Okay, and I'm going to try and read I'm the I'm at my computer and the, my eyes are like going like bad, so I'm trying to read my tiny little my tiny little notes here. <laughs> All right, so integrative organismal biology, okay, focusing on the mechanics of cane toad feeding methods. All right. Now this is by and large in well You would think primarily about the tongue, but I mean, there's a lot to amphibian feeding strategies besides just the tongue. And, um, I want to get into the specifics of the, the specifics of the paper, but why don't we just, before that, we'll talk about a little bit of background information, maybe regarding like that feeding strategy for frogs in general. Like what's, what's so special about the tongue that we kind of always associate frogs with having that, that very, very unique and very uh, specific feeding mechanism.
1: Well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, most people, you know, they, they think of frog eating something. They think of this giant pink tongue that shoots out and catches a fly or something like that. But I mean, amphibians eat in lots of different ways. Um, so some of them don't even have tongues. Like uh, there's a couple frogs that are aquatic, like uh, the Suriname toad, that are suction feeders. So they don't have a tongue at all. They just open in their mouth really fast underwater and the negative pressure uh sucks in any food that's in front of them um but then you also have like in some salamanders they use jaw prehension so they you know have these big teeth and they just grab onto the prey with their mouth but i mean then there's this other crazy way of eating where they have this really long tongue that comes out Uh, super fast and catches prey. And it's not just frogs that do that. There's also some um, belitoglossine salamanders that have this incredibly cool, almost chameleon-like tongue that shoots out um, super fast to catch food. Um, And it's just really interesting how that, I mean, there aren't, other than chameleons, there aren't a lot of other animals that eat like that. Um, But it seems super effective for catching prey especially fast prey like insects because all of that the the tongue shooting out happens so fast um the insect can't really react in time
0: why not teeth like why is why aren't teeth not the dominant cuz when i think of mammals when i think of reptiles well, with the exception of tortoises, I should say, because they they're kind of toothless, but um <laughs> and you know, they I, have little beaks. <laughs> yeah, I I think of crocodilians, I think of of squamates, I think of mammals. Why not teeth? Why have frogs evolved not all of them, obviously as you said there's there's many exceptions, but like why not like why is why are teeth not the dominant uh, method of uh, acquiring prey?
1: Yeah, that's a super interesting question. It's actually a question that we still don't know <laughs> the answer to. Um, so this is something that, so my colleague, uh, Dr. Dan Palu is kind of looking into this question because he's really interested in, in teeth and what bones the teeth are on and why they were lost. And I think some of the um, hypotheses that have been put out is that it could actually be the innovation of this ballistic tongue that makes it so that teeth aren't really important anymore right? If you imagine, you know, you've got this super awesome long tongue that can catch things, then your teeth aren't really as vital, right, for catching food. And so, you know, what's the point in developing these really, I mean, it's energetically expensive for animals to make teeth, you know, they're, they're complicated, there's lots of, um, you know, resources that go into making them. So if you could avoid making teeth, then that would be a benefit. But we still don't really know, <laughs> I guess, is the answer.
0: You know, that's that's an interesting point I never really even thought about is the, I guess, the amount of, of bodily energy that goes into creating and making teeth.
1: Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, the weird thing is, you know, this is a paper that... um Dan and a lot of uh, the others of us in the Blackburn Lab wrote in 2021 on tooth loss in frogs. And it's just really interesting that, you know, there are frog lineage is pretty big. You know, there's 7,500 species of frogs, but tooth loss, like complete tooth loss um, in frogs has happened over 20 times across that, just just frogs. and And that's more than all other groups of tetrapods combined, like, you know, birds lost their teeth once, turtles lost them once. Um, And then mammals, you know, of course you have anteaters and things like that, but for frogs, it seems to be easy to lose teeth. (laughs) Um, It's just a really interesting question because, you know, people usually don't really think about frogs that much when they think of tooth loss, but they're actually a really interesting group to study.
0: I feel like many people I guess often maybe oversimplify the mechanics of a of, of frog or toad sticking its tongue out and catching a bug with it and bringing it back. But if you if you watch, I mean, I've seen slow motion photo, uh, slow motion video of it. That was honestly pretty old, actually, and it's it's still pretty incredible what happens in that very very short burst of time. But um, I mean, you've made a real thorough study of this and. I mean, we can get into the paper actually right now. Um, I mean, first, like start off, I guess, what was like some of the background behind this? Like, why did you want to figure out what the mechanics of feeding were in this type of situation? Like, what was the, you know, what, what, what kind of put the idea into your head to study this?
1: Well, I mean, this frogs are just, I love everything about frogs, (laughs) but, um, this particular question was interesting because I wanted to, so during my dissertation, I did several chapters. So this is one that uses biomechanical methods. I really wanted to learn this technique of XROM, which I'm sure we'll talk about um, later, but I wanted to, you know, learn more about frogs using these new techniques that allow us to see inside, you know, of an animal. So previously high-speed video is, it's awesome, but you can only see the things that are on the external surface of an animal. Um, you really have no idea what's happening once the frog's mouth closes, right? In this circumstance, and it's really interesting to be the first one to see. Well, what's actually happening in there? <laughs> um, you know, in frogs, if you do, I you know love doing dissections of museum specimens, and when you dissect a frog um and you especially in the the forefront of the frog you'll notice in their throat it's just this really complex area where there's all these really weird muscles in their um the floor of their mouth is bizarre looking and it just makes you ask the question of what's going on in here <laughs> um you know especially this area of complete, you know, absence of knowledge about how do they actually swallow their food? Like they get this huge tongue out, but then how do they get it back in?
0: Yeah, it's pretty incredible.
1: Yeah. I mean, and the good thing is, so my friend, you know, science is definitely a collaborative effort. Um, I, my good friend, Chris um, Merrill, uh, who's now at Northern Arizona University, um, he had you know, talk to me, like we should do XROM together sometime. Cause he does um, this method with turtles and pigs and he's like an expert in it. And so fortunately that collaboration um, was able to happen a little delayed because of COVID. But um, once I was able to get my hands on these ginormous cane toads, then we knew we had a good project ready to go. <laughs>
0: Did the size of the cane toads help? Was it was that like a choice, or I mean, I know they're, they're invasive in the U.S., so they're pretty easy to get a hold of. But um, would a larger specimen make the research a little bit more, um, I guess, manageable?
1: Oh yeah. So um, for XROM, which is uh, stands for the X-ray reconstruction of moving morphology, it involves using X-ray high-speed X-ray cameras to look at. How animals move Um, and that setup is a certain size so there's a particular size of organism that looks the best on x-ray if you have one that's too small sometimes it's hard to see all of the different elements but something about the size uh, you know maybe of six or seven inches across is the perfect size Um, but bigger is better um, in this case Uh, so fortunately I was able to uh, acquire these really really big cane toads they were almost the size of a football like they were <laughs> really big um so they and they, the other benefit of having a big toad is that they eat a lot more than a small toad does so if you're trying to study how they feed if you could get a toad that eats 50 crickets in a row versus 10 then um it's more beneficial
0: did you choose um like I mean it may sound like a silly question but did you pick a certain prey item like like I mean crickets are commonly available but they kind of just like you know they don't really they 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 move they're active like as opposed to like another species of prey item like I don't know like like dubia roaches or um or like hornworms or something like that
1: yeah I mean honestly I was really keen on I really wanted them to eat different sized prey so like you know, at the beginning, when we were trying to figure things out, I was thinking, well, mice, um, crickets, maybe something even smaller than crickets. But unfortunately, you're limited by, um, you know, there's the uh, international, or what is it, the institutional animal care and use committee. And so they work together with you. And and essentially, they were saying, it's, you know, if you don't have to use mice, you shouldn't. (laughs) Um, So I ended up using crickets, um, which are perfectly fine and they were available um but hopefully in the future i'll be able to do some work on different prey sizes because i'm sure that makes a difference these big toads were really unhappy (laughs) eating small crickets when they obviously wanted to eat something bigger
0: (laughs) so i'm wondering okay we have a we have a big marine toad cane toad and we're going to put some crickets in front of it walk us through the mechanics of of what happens now first of all like did did the crickets were they at a certain distance like like how did you how did you set the experiment up where the crickets would be at a certain i guess controlled point or 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 was there a control point
1: well we you know part of this was um we we had these huge toads that would eat about a hundred crickets in a row <laughs> um so f- we had the benefit of just so many um variables that we could test um so we tried and it's a bit difficult to get the cricket to be in a certain position um so when we had the toads in the setup which is essentially a big plexiglass um container with two ginormous x-ray cameras pointing at the toad from two different directions and the fortunately the toads were just fine they <laughs> they were acting like they d- belonged there so they were happy to eat there Um, but it it kind of involved tossing the cricket (laughs) into the enclosure uh, and then the toad decided when he wanted to eat it. Um, So we were able to get essentially a um, a variance in distances from really close to the toad to really far away and we could measure all of those positions in post um, looking at the videos. So it was great because we could ask questions like what, how does distance change the mechanics of feeding? Um, you know, how are toads changing their posture, um, depending on where the cricket is and you know, what areas will a toad not even attempt to eat the cricket? Um, since I, I, this is just anecdotal, but I do think that they got a little bit used to me dropping the cricket right in front of them. And so if it was a little further away, they would (laughs) wait for me to give them another one (laughs) closer. Um, but yeah, there was no particular point. I was just trying to toss the cricket so that it was in front of the toad's face so that they could see it.
0: And what happens from the moment that the, the toad sees the cricket and decides, okay, I want to eat it. The the tongue comes out, but there's also other parts of the body that are involved in, as well. And that's what you, that's what you found, right? So what, on an, on an anatomical level, what happens from the moment that the toad opens its mouth till it, you know... Consumes a frog and closes it again. What what happens physically to it?
1: Yeah, th- that's a big question. <laughs> so I think I'm gonna start by just explaining the different players in terms of anatomy that are going to be playing a role so that everyone knows what what I'm talking about. <laughs> um so for a toad, especially for this particular movement. Um, you know, the two first big players are the upper part of the skull. So this is like the maxilla, the back of the skull, the brain case, um, which kind of moves like a single solid structure. So this is just like your, the top of your head, basically. Uh, then you have the lower jaw, um, of the toad, which kind of articulates with the upper jaw. Um, and it's a bit bendable. Um, I don't know when's the last time you did a frog dissection, but, um, the lower jaw, has a kind of a slick slip of cartilage in it, uh, and there are, are two, you know, different parts of the the lower jaw, so they can bend a little bit. And then, of course, toads don't have any teeth, so there's no teeth playing a role here. Um, the other bony part that's important to consider is the shoulder bones of the toad. So you have the toad's head, um, and frogs don't really have much of a neck, <laughs> so the shoulders are just almost right behind the head. If you look at a frog's body, um, the shoulders are a bit kind of lower than the head. Um, There are actually four bones that make up the chest of the frog. So it's kind of like your clavicles, except frogs have clavicles and coracoids. And in toads, the right and the left uh, pairs of those two bones aren't fused in the middle, so they can kind of rotate. and then of course you have, you know, the arms come out from the sides of those bones. So you have the humerus um, at the for the forearm or the the upper part of the arm. Um, but the other part that's really interesting in terms of this paper is this other element, which isn't really a bone. So this is the hyoid apparatus, which is homologous to the human Adam's apple. So you're um, the bone that's kind of in your throat. But in frogs, it looks a lot different. So in frogs, the floor of the mouth is made, is supported by this hyoid apparatus, which is kind of like a slip of cartilage about, I mean, think about like a stamp where it's super thin, um, but it's like a plate uh, and it's made of cartilage. So it's bendy um, and it has all of these projections that come out of it. So there's two projections that point forward uh, in the frog's mouth that are like a W, a very thin um, slip of cartilage that attaches to the back of the the skull, but no other point of the hyoid is connected to anything else, um, you know, except with muscles. Um, And then you have these other projections that come off the sides. And then in the back, there are two other projections And those ones are actually ossified, so those are bone-like. And the reason that is, is because they support the folds of muscles that make up the vocal cords uh, of the windpipe of the frog. So they need to be pretty sturdy. Um, So this is a really complicated structure that's involved in in feeding and vocalizing and breathing. So it's pretty complicated. And this is what I was kind of getting at before. Um, and the other thing that's really interesting about it is it's connected to everything. It's connected to the pectoral girdle, which are the shoulder bones. It's connected to the tongue. It's connected to the, um, the lower jaw, the upper part of the skull. Like, it's kind of like a marionette where all the muscles are the strings holding it, um, in place. So it's, it's really interesting. Um, and of course the last thing that is going to, be important here is the tongue, (laughs) which is uh, made up of a complex series of muscles that that attach to the hyoid, attach to the lower jaw, um, and it kind of sits in the frog's mouth in a weird way. I don't know, uh, if you look really closely at these high-speed videos of frogs eating, you'll notice that the tongue is actually attached in the front of the mouth rather than in the back like a human tongue is. Um, and so when it comes out of the mouth it's actually doing a 180 so it's flipping the the tongue tip is furthest back in the mouth and then it comes out um, to catch the the food item so it's it's kind of (laughs) complicated um but when the toad so now those are the the parts that i'm going to be talking about but um once the toad there's kind of a series of events that go forward once the toad decides to eat a cricket um and it's really fast so all of this that I'm going to talk about is happening in about a second and a half um (laughs) but it's it's just so fast but it's really there's a lot going on um and the first part is that the toad has to line up the shot basically with the cricket like it has to I from what we can tell the tongue can't go off to the side, like they can't stick it out of the side of their mouth. It always goes pretty straight. So what they do is they kind of, they look at the food item and they point up the tip of their nose directly like it's pointing at the cricket. And they're really good at this. This happens fast. Um, they line up their <laughs> their tongue <laughs> basically. Um, and the first frame that we start counting as the feeding cycle is when the toad starts closing its eyes. So the first thing they do is they start closing their eyes. And at the same time that that happens, their mouth opens really fast. So this is, we're talking like 50 milliseconds, which is shorter than the blink of an eye. Um, and that really fast downward movement of the jaw basically flings the tongue forward <laughs> out of the mouth um, in a, basically a straight line. Um, and it elongates, so it stretches out under its own inertia. So it essentially, it stretches out, and it's super soft um, and sticky. So when the tongue, the tip of the tongue, which is the tongue pad, uh, when it hits the cricket, it kind of like wraps around it and coats it in saliva. So there's no way that cricket is getting out <laughs> once um, once the tongue has hit it. Um, and so at that point, we know a lot about how that works. There's all this these awesome papers about, you know, which muscles fire at what point. But um, everything after that is kind of less studied. So this is when it starts getting kind of cool. Um, so what we saw in the x-ray videos is that the hyoid, which is, again, th- this plate on the floor of the mouth, starts to pull backwards and downwards towards those pectoral girdle bones, so the frog's chest, basically. Um, and at the same time, the jaw opens a little bit wider, um, and those two motions appear to be pulling, um, of course there's muscles too that are doing this, but it helps pull the tongue backwards and it doesn't move the same way as it went out. So when it comes out of the mouth, it, the tongue isn't touching itself anywhere when it's being flipped out, but when it comes backwards, it kind of slides up its own, like its own length. And the hyoid keeps moving backward and downward to be right over the chest, basically. Um, and the tongue kind of slaps, like once the, the, the hyoid is really, it's pulled back so far, it's almost like abutting the muscles around the heart. Like it seems to be stopped by, like physically stopped by the heart from moving back further. Um, the tongue comes backwards and it slaps into the hyoid like a baseball <laughs> into a mitt. Um, and it with the food item so the tongue at this point is so far backwards it's actually behind the back of the skull which is which is just crazy I can't imagine swallowing something and then my tongue is behind the back of my head Um, but then uh, we also found that on average the tongue is stretching more than it it, um, going backwards than it does going forwards. so there's a bit of variation, but the tongue is actually when it's at this fully retracted position is it stretched more than when it went to go catch the food, which we were just stunned by. I almost couldn't believe it when we saw the first x-ray video. We're like, it can't possibly be that far backwards. That's crazy. At first, we thought that it swallowed its tongue. Um but, after watching the videos again and again, it's it hasn't actually swallowed anything yet. It just has pulled the back of its throat back further backwards, basically. Um, and then, at this point, <laughs> it's ready to be swallowed. So what they do at that point is uh, so the mouth closes um, after it's at this maximal retracted position, um, and then their eyes reopen. Um, So their mouth is closed at this point. You can't see what's happening unless you're using an x-ray camera. Um, So the hyoid, um, after it was in this really far back position, it rotates so that the concave part of it, that's like holding the tip of the tongue and the food, um, it points backwards. So to the back of the toad, and then it moves straight up. And so remember there's these two very thin pieces of cartilage that hold it to the skull Um, And those are, when it's being pulled back this far, those are stretched tight. And what it looks like happens is that those spring apart and then this helps move it up really fast and it it squishes the tongue against the roof of the mouth. So the tongue and the food are like squished um, in the mouth. And then the tongue starts to move forwards um, while it's being pressed between the hyoid and the roof of the mouth. And that kind of squeegees the food off of it (laughs) because, I mean, the the tongue is super sticky um, and it seems like the toad needs to be able to squish off the food um, from its sticky tongue using this hyoid uh, movement to kind of push up um, so that the throat can close around the food item uh, and shove it into the esophagus. Um, And then... After the food is in the esophagus, then the tongue and the hyoid can relax and go back to their normal positions. Um, But, I mean, all of that takes about a second (laughs) and a half. So it's it's just (laughs) its crazy fast, but there's a lot going on.
0: I'm watching this little clip online. Um, I'm I'm assuming this is actually your your research because there's a a cane toad, which looks like a... um... Like an acrylic tank and I've, I've been honest been watching it go back and forth and back and forth while we've been talking it's 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 actually really amazing because it's not just like a human tongue that just comes out and then you know grabs a little cricket. yeah it actually yeah. it it flips your it does a whole hundred and one eighty it flips out almost like um almost like a forearm extending you know like if you yeah. had your arm. Uh, if you had your arm crooked and it extends out and then I guess your hand would be the end of the tongue and then it pulls it back. Why exactly? Yeah. Why do the eyes close before it, like the initial tongue strike? Why, why, why does that happen?
1: So that's such a good question. And that's something I was wondering too, because when I was first watching these videos, I'm like, this must be so hard. They can't even see what's going on (laughs) after they, they, you know, after they line up their shot, they are, they're blind to what happens afterwards. Um, and I I've been reading a you know I read a bunch of papers about why people think this happens and I think it's still somewhat of an open question. But the leading hypothesis is that um, the it's thought that potentially they could close their eyes to protect themselves uh, from like basically the prey item flying off of their tongue and hitting their eye. <laughs> so you know if they're they've got this tongue and they're flinging it out and you know what would happen if they accidentally, the food flew off of the tongue or they slapped themselves in the eye. <laughs> um, so essentially the, the leading hypothesis is so they don't get an eye full of cricket.
0: <laughs> Makes sense. But I don't know
1: I, for sure. But the weird thing is, you know, if a lot of, there's been other papers that show that the closure of the eyes is important for swallowing in some frogs that are eating big prey. Because in, if you look at a frog skull, there's just these two giant holes uh, in it where the eyes are. And so when the, they close their eyes, their eyes, actually the bottom part of the eye goes partially into the mouth cavity. So it, that could be used to potentially kind of push food down against the, the floor of the mouth so that they could hold on to it better. But in our data, we didn't find any evidence of that in the toads because all of the swallowing is happening well behind the eyes. Um, and they're also opening their eyes before they even swallow. So, it seems to be something that's different across different species of frogs or potentially how big the prey is in their mouth.
0: I see. Yeah, that was the first thing that struck me in the video as being odd because I've I mean, I've always heard with you know, with the exception of certain species obviously, is if frogs use their eyes to kind of, you know, compress the food down and helps them swallow, but I never would have expected to see it before they even get the the prey item in their mouth.
1: Yeah, it's so weird because, I mean, we were expecting that too, but these guys are definitely not using their eyes to swallow, Um, which is just, that that was another thing that was really surprising.
0: Is that, do you think that that's kind of like being like dispelled as a myth? I mean, is that something that might apply to other species as well?
1: Well, I don't think it's a myth. Um, There's one paper from uh, Dr. Beth Brainerd's lab um, that, essentially it also uses x-rays to show that you know these frogs I think it was a different I think they were ranids they weren't toads but um there is evidence that they do um some species do use their eyes during swallowing really consistently um but I think that it's not something that happens it obviously doesn't need to happen um since we saw in these cane toads that they don't use their eyes to swallow so I, I think it depends on the species and I think if I was able to test uh, in the future cane toads eating a bigger prey item, I think we might see some differences. Because I don't know if you've ever fed a cane toad before, um, but when I was at UMass taking care of the cane toad there, we would feed it uh, larger prey items, and it, I, I definitely saw it—you know, anecdotally—use close its eyes when it was eating like a mouse or something.
0: The last cane toad I had was. Um... 25 years ago and i still have it oh, wow. i still have it preserved as a wet as a wet specimen actually
1: oh yeah yeah
0: i <laughs> preserved it in a jar of rubbing alcohol around 1997 maybe i want to say and we oh, wow. yeah we've had it ever since it's actually in one of my curio cabinets we, we um <laughs> yeah it's but um i remember it, it wasn't a this wasn't like a, a huge beast of a cane toad but i remember watching it feed and it was it was like aggressive but delicate at the same time. Like it wasn't like watching, like my saratophrids, like my my horn frogs, oh, yeah. or my my, my Watching them eat was 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 different. Like the, honestly, the pixoccephalus actually was a kind of kind of delicate compared to the saratophrids, but it, it was <laughs> everything. It's it was like a whole. It was, it it was, it seemed like it was very, very complicated because the tongue would come out really, really fast, like faster than anything else I'd ever seen. And then the prey was just gone.
1: Yeah. They're almost delicate about it. Like the way that they, they're pretty accurate. At least our toads were in this study. I think they hit the cricket like 95% of the time. Um, They're very, they line up their shots carefully and they just, they only touch the cricket. Like the tongue isn't going anywhere else. They're not using their hands. Like I've seen pictures of, uh, or videos of bullfrogs eating like birds and that's incredibly messy. <laughs> um, but the, these toads are definitely dainty about it. You're absolutely right. Um, they're, they're great for pets because they're just complete chow hounds though. They'll, they'll eat <laughs> until they're completely full.
0: There was something in the news about this like apparently it was the largest cane toe that I think had ever been found. I, I saw that. You saw that? And I'm. I, it's funny yeah. because I, after you and I had, had kind of emailed each other back and forth, I saw that. And I'm thinking like, oh my God, like <laughs> I wonder what this thing does. <laughs>
1: I know. I know. I wish they had just kept it, um, you know, like for education even. Um, I think they, they ended up euthanizing it, but I mean, can you imagine that that thing was, I think it weighed twice as much as the toads I used, And I had to keep my toads in like 50 gallon enclosures. They were so big, <laughs> you know, it must've just been a monster and who knows how it was eating things.
0: It was, yeah, it was huge. I, I mean, that has to be sitting in a lab. S- somebody has to have that.
1: I mean, someone should, I mean, <laughs> I think they have it somewhere, but they should have kept it alive. They should have seen how big it could get. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> like, like BL, Be- BL's a buffo. I,
1: I know. I think, you know, maybe, you know, who knows how big cane toads could get. I think they're, they're pretty variable. It depends on where they are, but I know Australia has pretty strict laws about, cause you know, they've got that whole issue where they're never going to get rid of those cane toads.
0: Yeah. That's like the fumble of the 20th, the biggest fumble of the 20th century. <laughs> that's a whole that's a whole other episode in and of itself but yeah
1: that's right <laughs> yeah
0: it's it's that's uh, it, interestingly enough it has to do with with feeding because they they weren't able to reach those cane beetles that they were originally <laughs> introduced to, to get well, rid of
1: yeah. yeah and they'll just be happy to eat anything else that's close to their face
0: <laughs> yeah yeah they're, they're monsters
1: they're great though i love keeping them
0: yeah they are pretty they are pretty cool i've seen some of them and I think it was just a different locality. I think it was Rococo toads, which I believe mm. were. I mean, you you'd know better than I would. Like, do you know if that's a different like locale or different um, like a subspecies of? Because um, the, the the taxonomy changed now. They're Rhinella merino, right?
1: Yeah, it's Rhinella. Yeah, yeah. I, I I'm not sure on the most up to date um, versions, but I know that from the locality definitely plays a role in the size of the toads, like they're biggest in their native range, apparently, except for that one. (laughs) It's in Australia um, from what I understand, but the ones in Florida that are just wilder, I've never seen one bigger than like my hand.
0: That was about the size that mine was. It was about maybe about the size, like a Big Mac. Yeah. Yeah. That's about about how big big they are.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But the ones, the ones that are from, you know, South America are, I mean, they're huge. They're like maybe two or three times that size.
0: Yeah. Those things are like beasts. I've, I've seen them at, at expos on and off over the years. I haven't, I haven't seen cane toads in a while, but the, the going back like 15, 20 years, I remember seeing some that were just, they were massive. They were like the size of dinner plates. They were just yeah. huge.
1: Yeah. That's how big the ones for this paper, we had three like dinner plate sized <laughs> toads <laughs> Um, but yeah, they're just, they're gorgeous too. I know some people don't like them cause they're invasive, but they're really pretty. You know, if you look at the, the patterns on the back, um, and they're just, and their eyes are really pretty too, but, um, they're, they're great. I actually, I got to draw them for the cover of that, um, IOB lets you put, you know, whatever d- picture you want on the front. So <laughs> had a lot of fun drawing those things.
0: Oh, that's great. You, you. You like to illustrate in addition to uh, doing your research, or that's just...
1: Oh, yeah. No, I, I I like to draw just as a hobby, but it comes in useful for uh, illustrating papers.
0: <laughs> oh, that's great. So, I'm curious about some of the methods, because some of the technology here is is pretty sophisticated. Can you walk us through some of the technology? I know you, you mentioned XROM before, but maybe in a little bit more detail, just kind of for the listeners, explain... How this was done on a technological level, and you know how how you were able to find results i mean you didn't just point a camera at it, obviously, you had quite a lot of stuff going on, right?
1: yeah, this isn't uh, your average high speed video setup um so this is you know that the technique is called xROm um which was uh came out of Brown University well well over ten years ago now um but it it stands for x ray reconstruction of moving morphology and so the the way it works is you have two high speed X ray cameras at different angles um, pointing at whatever animal that you're interested in studying, um, and you also typically have a regular like light camera uh, high speed light video setup happening too so that you can line those up uh, in post. But the most important part is the X rays, um, and having them having two of them uh, recording simultaneously is beneficial because it allows you to triangulate the positions of markers in 3d space really precisely uh, and accurately so for example if you have um what's typically used is like a tantalum marker which is like less than a it's like a round ball that's less than a millimeter in diameter and those are typically used for human Um, clinical procedures and and things like that. And if you um, glue one to the top of a toad's head, for example, um, and it's moving its head uh, during the video, then you can use the position of the bead in both of the cameras to figure out what are the XYZ coordinates of that marker in every frame of the video. Um, And so what you do is, so before you record, you put all of these markers onto whatever elements you're interested in asking questions about. So for our toads, we put markers on the skull, uh, the lower jaw, uh, those ones we could just glue on because uh, toad skin is pretty tightly associated with their, um, their bones. Um, and then we, uh, you know, use aseptic surgical methods to put the other markers into the bones of the pectoral girdle, Um, we put some in the hyoid, and we put some in the tongue. Um, And so the toads were completely fine. (laughs) You know, they were ready to eat eat right away. Um, But once they recovered, we, you know, recorded video of them eating. uh, And then after that, we CT scanned them. So that's just a CAT scan, you know, with toads, where we um, take all of these x-ray pictures from every angle, basically, of the toad. And then the computer can reconstruct those into essentially a 3D model of the toad skeleton. Um, And then I, you know, I segmented out just the bones that we were interested in. So, you know, the clavicle, the coracoid, um, the lower jaw, and then I exported those as like 3D models. So I could 3D print them if I wanted to. Um, but what I did was I took those models and then I loaded them into Maya, which is an animation software that I think I think Pixar might use it. Definitely one of those animation companies um, that makes movies, they use it. But um, we load the bones into the software and then we use the 3D coordinates that we just got from the two X-ray uh, cameras. Um, And then we attach those basically to the bones and then animate the bones with the real movements of the animal. Um, And so this basically allows us to animate the skeletons in all of the the things that have beads in them, like the tongue, and calculate exactly where the tongue tip is at what point. And that's how we know for sure that the tip of the tongue is going behind the skull because we can see it um, in the animation software. So it's super cool, but it does require, you know, the animal be big enough to be in, visible in the x-ray uh, cameras and also big enough to have these beads in it and, and have it not bother them.
0: I'm just picturing doing this with dart frogs because, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of my audience is, is really hardcore dart frog people, myself included. And now I'm, oh, just, they're I'm, cool. I'm just thinking about these methods being applied to so many other different species. I mean, it's really amazing. I mean, like the fact that the tip of the tongue points towards the back is one of the things that that struck me as the most interesting because you wouldn't think that it would would be... It's basically like folded in half almost, right?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's like complete opposite from humans. You know, why would you think of that unless you went into a frog's mouth and looked? (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah. So, I mean, what like, what was this, like, the, the key takeaway here? Like, after all is said and done, you have all the data, you've looked at all the imaging and whatnot. What's the the main takeaway from this experiment?
1: So, this is just the beginning, I think, of a very interesting line of inquiry. Um, so, we, first, we this was just kind of looking to see what is happening, you know, once the mouth closes in frogs, and it turns out it's doing something we didn't even expect. Um, and so, I think that the even just looking at cane toads in this one paper can tell us a lot about the evolution of frogs, you know, asking questions about, well, why do frogs have this special tongue? You know, why is their hyoid shaped so weird? Um, you know, because it, it, it just begs the question of, well, there's 7,500 species of frogs. Like, are they all doing the same thing? They definitely have really different hyoids um like in the paper i drew there's one figure that shows just six of the different um hyoid morphologies that you know a frog could have and some of them are completely different like they have cane toads have this very gracile looking hyoid but in some of them those flanges are completely connected together sometimes the there's two processes that come off the side sometimes those are huge like bigger than the plate of the main part of the hyoid um and i think it will be really um informative for us to look at different species of frogs and you know how do they eat differently most people just think uh frogs are gape limited predators you know they eat whatever fits in their mouth and i to some extent i think that's true but i think the way that they process the food is definitely i would hypothesize that it's different considering how different their mouths look on the inside um well, I think the group that's potentially the most interesting, I mean, obviously dendrobatids are cool and we need to know, um, <laughs> but I think microhylids like uh, tomato frogs and uh, what's the other one that's in the pet trade, like chubby frogs, um, they are really an interesting group because, you know, frogs have this all this diversity in the mouth, but microhylids have this really weird, um, it's like a, kind of these folds in the back of their throat um, right where this area is where the hyoid comes up and squishes the prey off of the tongue in the cane toad where it has like these ridges that are like teeth but they're not really teeth and nobody knew what those were you know they they were important for like telling micropylid species apart but nobody ever asked well why are those there <laughs> um, but now that we know that this weird scraping movement is happening with the hyoid then you know now we can ask a question what well, like okay, well, are they using those little uh, folds to help get prey off of their tongue? And then, you know, why would that be so important? Like, are their tongues just more sticky? Do their tongues work differently? Um, Just basic questions about why, you know, how do we explain frog diversity? Why do they look so different from each other? And, you know, why are there this many species of frogs? Um, And those are the kind of questions that I think are really interesting as a, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, like, you know, why do these, why do certain things happen over and over again? You know, why, um, you know, why are frogs so good at so many things? (laughs) Um, You know, but this is just the beginning. I think the real interesting work is going to be in the future when we look at more species and compare them um, and then also look at, you know, the different lifestyles they have since you know dendrobatids, for example are definitely have different feeding methods than a cane toad right
0: oh yeah oh definitely it, it's i'm just i'm looking at some of the the, the figures because uh, i have i have the paper in front of me and um just the let me pull it up here you have an illustration of several different species of uh, hyoid bones and the 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 diversity is, is incredible. I mean, you wouldn't think that something like that would be so sophisticated, I guess, unless you actually looked for it. But um, there's an incredible amount of variation here.
1: Yeah, and that's just six. Yeah. <laughs> like I had to pick. There's this excellent paper from, I think, the 1930s um, by, I think it's Evelyn uh, Trevois, Um, And she basically, back then, just went through the, this museum collection of frogs and just drew the hyoid of all, all of these species um, and I was just flipping through it and it was it's, it's amazing you know especially just every part of it like there's there's not like a typical frog hyoid you know there's there's some that are just super weird like some of them have this bone that's like in the middle of the plate you know the one on the bottom right um the Mexican burrowing toad you know it's just super weird they've got parts that are like not connected and those guys are eating ants and termites so I, I definitely think those ones are worth looking at. Same with Himesis also eats ants. Um and they I think Himesis is the only frog with the prehensile tongue. So you know they're definitely doing different things. And I think we need to know <laughs> you know how it works because we just we just don't know that basic things about um some of my favorite species of frogs.
0: I'm looking at uh, Pippa Pippa and oh, yeah. the hyoid bone for this <laughs> one is like, I, I mean, if if you're okay with it, I'd like to include a link to the paper just so the listeners can, oh, can see some of this. It's
1: open access.
0: And um, it, it's just like for I mean, for anybody listening, I'm just looking at these now. They kind of look like a, like Rorschach tests. You know, you take a piece of,
1: <laughs> what do you see? Yeah. You take a
0: you take a piece of an ink blot and you, you fold the paper in half and it, it's, Looks like it's called Rorschach test. (laughs) It it it, that's really what it looks like with with the variety, but the the pippa pippa one is it looks like it looks like two like it looks like a barbell almost or like
1: yeah.
0: um, (laughs) Now did did you notice any like any correlate? I mean, obviously you only did the study with with um, you know with Renella Marina, but did you do you speculate that there might be any like. Like the the size of the hyoid play a role in in like different types of prey. I mean, is there like a larger hyoid bone for larger like species that prey on larger larger prey items, or like how do you yeah, that, how do you speculate like the different hyoid? You know how would how would it vary towards species based on preferred prey? We'll say.
1: Yeah, that's a super interesting question. I didn't even think about relative size. Um, in the mouth basically um i'd have to actually i think do some dissections (laughs) uh to get a better idea but for pippa pippa um you pointed out is definitely the weirdest looking one and i think that one you know i scaled all these to be about the same height and that one has the biggest amount of blue on it so it's the biggest you know i think that one probably has the biggest surface area And for that particular, so Pippoids are just weird. (laughs) I'll I'll just start off by saying that Um, anatomically and just the way they look. But um, they are suction feeders. And there's a really nice, there's a couple papers just about the way that Pippa Pippa uh, feeds. Because those plates, they're like these huge, um, it's almost like a double plate of the hyoid. Um, seems to be really important for muscle attachment so there's this crazy muscle that goes from the hyoid to the femur like the leg which is (laughs) really weird like that's not normal Um, and so they have these huge muscles that essentially the hyoid is acting like a um, uh, I guess like a piston almost like it's you know, they open their mouth and then they pull back this, the floor of their mouth. And uh, it almost looks like their whole body becomes like like a tube. (laughs) Like they create this huge area inside their body that just everything in front of their face goes inside (laughs) of their body. And then uh, they close their mouth around it. So I think, I think that in that species, the hyoid having these, this huge surface area is important because it allows them to generate more suction force and they don't have tongues at all. So it also probably, you know, if they lose their tongue, then they don't need to have that big plate on the front of the hyoid. So maybe that kind of makes it uh, or loosens the, um, you know, let's, lets the hyoid do crazy things, basically. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I'd have to actually, you know, get some data to test that idea. But um, it's definitely, I think, that the shape is certainly related to the mechanics of the hyoid, even in all of these other species. But understanding exactly what that relationship is will involve actually getting some frogs in the lab and and testing it out, which is really exciting.
0: <laughs> Another question I just kind of thought of now, and I mean I'm just going to ask it and maybe speculate or give your or give your opinion. In terms of, I mean, you raised a good point earlier in a discussion about energy and how it's important to expend as little energy as possible to, you know, for the the maximum, um, I guess, uh, maximum getting like like a maximum return. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. As I poorly worded that, um, is this, is this energy efficient and this type of feeding as opposed to say something else that's not, you know, that requires more energy?
1: Uh, you mean suction feeding or just the tongue, uh, ballistic tongues that frogs have?
0: Well, I, either, or, I meant, um, the, the, the tongue, but, um, I mean, either, or if, if you think that, um, I don't know, what do you think, what do you think about that in terms of each one? Like which one is, uh, is more energy efficient?
1: Yeah. It's interesting. It's, it's similar to one of the questions I got during my <laughs> comprehensive exams. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, I mean, I think there's a reason, well, you know, you can't have an animal suction feeding in the air, right? It's, this is something that's only going to work. Physically in water, um, typically. Although there's probably some weird <laughs> invertebrate that does that. I just don't know about. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely a, that's a really interesting question. It's kind of getting into physiology. You know, like how much energy goes in, how much is used. Um, but it's de- the frogs are definitely not. You know, they don't have to process their food as much as like you know, like a big predator, like a mammal, like a wolf or something you know, like a a mammal has to process the food, you know, uh, grind down whatever it is that they're eating. And like, they have these crazy big teeth that they have to develop. Um, But on the other hand, I do think getting, you know, when you process food like that, you might be able to get more out of the food than just being like a frog and just swallowing the cricket hole, right? Because if you look at frog uh, stools, for example, you know, I have my frog, it's just, sometimes it just looks like the whole cricket came out, <laughs> you know, cause they're not, they're not processing it as much, but you know, I'm not a physiologist, but um, but I think there's definitely a lot of trade-offs happening, you know? So do you spend the time and energy to develop teeth and break down your food to get as much nutrients as possible? Or do you just have this really fast tongue and no teeth and just eat as many crickets as possible, even though you might not be getting, that much nutrition from it? I don't know. Um, but it's a really interesting question.
0: That's just one of those things I, th- I think about, cause I feel like, th- I mean, as human beings, we're mammals, we're kind of, I guess, biased towards looking at things from a, a mammalian mindset. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, you know, most people keep dogs and cats. Not everybody has like 20, 30 frogs, you know, in their basements <laughs> the way I do, but It's, it's, it's interesting to think about feeding mechanics through a different lens because you watch your dog, you watch your cat, you watch your ferret, your hamster, whatever eat, you watch a mammal chew, it goes through some sort of process. I mean, ruminants have multi-chambered stomachs and it's, 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 it's amazing how much effort it really does take for, I'd say the majority of mammals, right. To be able to procure food and to digest it and process it. It almost seems like frogs have more of a. I mean, obviously it's not simplistic because that would kind of defeat the purpose. <laughs> the purpose of the episode because it is pretty, it is pretty sophisticated. But I mean, to, to streamline, yeah, to me it does seem a lot more efficient because of the you know there there's no real chewing involved. There's no, um, you know, it's 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 quick. The prey is is captured and dispatched really with like minimal. I mean, it's it's it happens so fast. It's in the blink of an eye. It's not like. Um,
1: yeah. They don't spend like an hour. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Exactly. Grass.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's really, I mean, there's just so many questions to ask about it. Um, but frogs in particular, it's, they're just so short bodied, you know, there's not, it's not, they don't have a bunch of different parts of their stomach. It's like, you know, we could even see it in the x-ray video when the toads are after they've eaten like 50 <laughs> crickets in a row, um, you know, their, there is their stomach is full you know it's like bursting almost like they just completely full of crickets and then their esophagus is also full of crickets but their esophagus is like you know there's the frog's face which in some frogs is like their whole body like you know ceratophorus frogs Um, and then they have this really short esophagus and then their stomach is like you know pretty big on the left side there Um, and then it just empties into their cloaca so there's really not it's not like they have this huge, um, I mean, they, they have their, um, their intestines and things like that, but it's not like they don't have a long body, you know, it's not like they, they're like a snake that, you know, spends a, a week <laughs> getting as much as possible out of their food. They're just, you know, um, pretty, pretty straightforward and they don't waste time <laughs> chewing their food. But you know, part of it could be that they could just, I mean, these toads would just, hold on to these you know they just fill fill their belly after this really burst of feeding and then they just kind of sit there and then they're fine they can just hang out <laughs> cuz they just have all this these crickets in their belly so i don't know they're just so different from other you know amniotes and things like that um who have completely different needs because you know of course amphibians are uh, cold-blooded you know they don't have they don't have to keep their body at the same temperature like mammals and birds do they don't have to spend as much energy doing that
0: yeah m- the more and more i think about it like being a mammal just like sucks like
1: <laughs> i know <it's, laughs> why couldn't we be frogs
0: <laughs> yeah 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 it's just like the amount of energy that's that's just w- constantly being wasted i don't know i'm, I'm yeah yeah just efficiency. sitting
1: here yeah. I mean, you have to, you have to make heat and then you have to sweat so that, cause you had too much heat. <laughs> it's just too complicated. Frogs are on the right track.
0: <laughs> yeah. Like one of the things that people take note of in, in captive settings, I mean, obviously there's a lot of pet frogs in the trade and certain species, like people, like, I don't think people realize the extent to which that they really don't want to do much. Like they, they want to eat and then that's basically it. Like they're not out. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I mean, I, I don't know of, well, I, actually, there are, there are species that really do go out and forage. My, my dart frogs do it. They're constantly out like foraging for food. But mm. I think that a lot of people forget that is like energy is key and you're not going to want to expend a tremendous amount of energy at the, at the, you're not going to want to get energy at the expense of the, of, expending more of it than you would need
1: yeah right if you're a frog and you just you know you can just sit in your you're at energy equilibrium then you know why would you waste energy doing something else when you could just wait for your next feeding event um yeah i keep i mean i've kept herps for for my whole life and i mean i i like the fact that they just sit there <laughs> you know like why would they you know like my my oldest snake you know once he gets a rat He's you know he's happy about it and then he just sleeps for like weeks (laughs) you know because he's full like but why would he be expending energy unless he was going to get something of benefit out of it um but yeah I mean frogs frogs are excellent pets just for that (laughs) it's
0: like when someone will come over to my house and I'll show them like the dart frogs are colorful and they kind of they're animated but the ambush predators they have like you know, my pixie, my horned frogs, people will look and say, well, well, what does it do? I'm like, you're looking at it. It's doing it right yeah. now. This is basically <laughs> what it does. What species, yeah. what species do you, have you kept and what are you keeping currently?
1: Well, unfortunately, I don't have a big dart frog set up yet. I, <laughs> that's a future dream when I have more space. Um, but I, I, a lot of my animals tend to be, I just, I've had them for a long time and I try not to have more than I have tanks, <laughs> um, but I've had my ball Python I've had since middle school. So he's going to be I think 17. I got him in 2005. So however far along that was. Um, and so he's pretty old. I also have a really old axolotl, um, that I've had for, Oh God, probably almost as long. <laughs> um, and then uh, for frogs, I have, um, it's actually a bit of a funny story, but I have a Cuban tree frog um, that's just massive. I just have a, a huge Cuban tree frog um, who's a, a, kind of a, talk about voracious predators. He, he'll eat anything. I mean, these are really invasive in Florida, which is how I, uh, I came across it. Um, but he's definitely not as elegant as, <laughs> as Dendrobates, for sure. Um, and then I also have a sand boa um, who I've had, he's, he's I uh, got him from someone else. So he's probably getting up there in age two. Um, and I recently got myself a vinegaroon, So I don't just, I, I'm trying to branch out, you know, not just, <laughs> not just herps. I'm going into invertebrates. Um, so she's uh, related to like scorpions and spiders, but um, they can shoot vinegar in self-defense. So they, they, they're not like a stinger, like a, a scorpion is.
0: Oh yeah, the vinegaroons are—they're amazing. I—I I got the invert bug about maybe like six years ago.
1: Oh yeah, I, yeah. I can, <laughs> it I have, always happens.
0: Yeah, I have a few <laughs> arachnids just because I started. I—I I started watching YouTube videos about tarantulas, and the more I watched, the more I realized, like, wow, these are really, like, they're really they're they're beautiful, and there's so many oh, different species cool. and so many different behaviors that they do and whatnot. It was amazing, but um, yeah, vinegaroons are are, are pretty i've never had one but i've always kind of had one on like my my wish list but i'm not i'm done uh, getting great.
1: oh well i mean they're so easy I, I mean it's like i'm already buying crickets so <laughs> what's another little, little tiny tank but she's great i mean she's really they have a really interesting hunting strategy because they have those really long second like pair of legs um and that they kind of use is like i guess they can't see very well because she's always just like feeling her way around <laughs> um but I guess I, now I'm talking about inverts on your frog podcast. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay.
0: There's there's a lot of there's a lot of crossover. I everyone. I mean, there are yeah, herb shows. Yeah, my,
1: I got herb show. Yeah, yeah,
0: they, yeah. If, if it wasn't herbs, they shouldn't be selling them there. Then.
1: That's right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I want I want to ask you actually now that we we've kind of established that you're a keeper as well, and um, we're we're kind of you know kind of winding down toward the end, but I wanted to ask you. You have animals that have lasted a long time. Your ball pythons, I guess, close to seventeen. I have some animals yeah. too that have just lived forever. Like my my king snake is now my oldest animal, and he's twenty two. Oh wow! What do you attribute the long life of your ball python and your axolotl? Like, if was there anything specific that you based your husbandry methods around, or was it like what? How did you get them to live that long?
1: Oh man, yeah, I guess. I mean, everyone that I know is, you know, they say I I baby them. (laughs) Um, You know, I I got the ball python and the axolotl when I was pretty young. And I think at the time they were my only animals. So I had a lot of energy, like, you know, I was all about just focusing on them and, you know, being really almost like a little bit too much. (laughs) Maybe, you know, I would give the ball python like, you know, baths when he got a stuck shed and you know like you know rub him down with the like a towel if you know he had a piece on his his neck that he couldn't get off i mean but you know they've been around for a, a while but they're they're just really hardy animals like i definitely think ball pythons are you know they're they're one of the best snakes you could have cuz they're just really um you know he's just hardy and he'll eat he'll eat anything you know he's really he's just a great feeder um you know he ate mice for a while but once i went down to florida for my um, my PhD, I think the warm weather just was really great for him. He grew like even more um, a bit, you know, he's a bit wide, <laughs> rather than long. Uh, but now he's on rats and, you know, he's just doing, it's almost like he hasn't aged at all. But the axolotl is a different story. I, I think he might be some kind of special, <laughs> special axolotl. I mean, I, I'm pretty careful with, like, I always check you know, his water and, and he was, you know, he's just super hardy too. You know, he just loves um night crawlers, he eats a lot. Um, but I, I guess I don't have that many animals. So I, I suppose I'm just spending a lot of my time um with the ones that I, I do have. And I mean the Axolotl's uh, I guess if you saw him you would see that he's he looks a bit geriatric. <laughs> you know, he's um he, I keep his water a little bit lower because now he can't, you know, he can't swim as well anymore. But, um, but yeah, I've had them for so long that I'm just so attached to them um, that they get a lot of attention.
0: And do you have any keeping preferences? Like, do you, do you keep, I know a lot, of, a lot of people like to keep apps. I'm like totally getting like tongue tied. Uh, Axolotl <laughs> well,
1: Axolotls a hard word. <laughs> I know, it's hard
0: enough to say anyway. Um, like, do you have a preference for keeping yours Like, did you keep it in a, like a complicated aquarium, a simple setup. I know people kind of run the gamut.
1: Yeah. Philosophy wise. Yeah. I, I always go for practical, um, enclosures just for cleaning, um, purposes, but also just for the, you know, as long as the animal seems to enjoy it, then that's fine for me. So for axolotls, I typically keep a bare bottom, um, aquaria, uh, with just, you know, a couple hides, um I think for him I use a sponge filter because he I don't want him to <laughs> hit his head on <laughs> like a different kind of filter but uh for other axolotls I mean it's fine to use like a uh over the back like hang on back filter um but I don't use that many plants like I don't use live plants um cuz it's just it's just more complicated um I'll use like fake plants for the ball python he just has really basic um like I don't use fancy substrate or anything it's just the recycled um I don't know what it's called it's almost like a a carpet um out of plastic kind of that it just looks like grass I guess but it's not it doesn't you, you know when it gets dirty you can just hose it off um and then he's just got two hides circular water bowl nothing in it like a kind of a fancy log to climb on but other than that you know whatever's the most efficient for clean like keeping it clean and um as long as they're happy then i'm happy the the sand boa that i have is the most depressed like it's just it looks like i have a tank full of sand <laughs> like, he never comes out so it's just like a big tank of sand <laughs> and like a water bowl and like a little hide but that's it
0: and the most interesting pet that you'll never see
1: i mean he's great like you could see his nostrils <laughs> You know, somewhere in there, he's got his little nose sticking up, but, um, uh, but he's great. But yeah, I, I've seen some of the danger batted enclosures with the living, like biotic systems. And that's just, you know, in my dreams one day <laughs> when I have a big, more time and like a ginormous setup. It's actually
0: not that hard, believe it or not. I It's.
1: That's um, what I've heard. What's, it's it really, going?
0: it really isn't. I mean, you can do it. I mean, it, it's it doesn't necessarily have to be like visually stunning the first time around. I mean, you could do a smaller, more practical build, and you know, everything, every tank doesn't have to be a showstopper, but it's actually very easy to, to get the setup. And once you kind of get everything running, it sort of maintains itself. And
1: Uh, that sounds nice.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's actually, it's not as hard as it looks. You know what it is? Like the thing about dart frog people is we kind of want everybody else to Think it's a lot harder than it than it is.
1: Because <laughs> then it,
0: it gives us a big ego boost, which is what we what we need.
1: I mean, it looks awesome. Like you know, they had a really nice one down in Florida at the Herp um store that I preferred to go to. They had like a giant enclosure with just probably like 20 bumblebee dart frogs, like little uh yellow and black ones. And uh, it was it was phenomenal. They had like misting uh, like fog makers in it. <laughs> it was, um, it was incredible. I do have a, um, uh, an automated, uh, what is it? A mist King, um, that I have set up to mist the Cuban tree frog two times a day. So I, 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 at this point, you know, it would be easy to just hook up a couple other frog tanks to it.
0: <laughs> That's a, I have my, my mist King. It does four tanks for me and it's just, four tanks? yeah, it's so, it's so Ooh, easy. Don't tell me that. You can do it with the 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 bigger mist king. I can't, but it it most of them run a quarter inch tube, but the bigger one runs a three eighths a three eighths tube.
1: Oh man! And
0: I think you can do like up to like twelve enclosures with it, or like up to like twenty nozzles or more. This is such
1: more. a dangerous conversation. Yeah, yeah.
0: All right, I'll stop. But but I mean, it's yeah, it's it's definitely within the realm of, of possibility. It it makes life so much easier as long as you've got uh, if you're gonna do heavy misting, as long as you've got uh, some sort of drainage. Whether it's like oh, a drainage yeah. layer that you manually drain yourself, or if the tank is drilled and it can go into a like you know, an overflow, a tray. Yeah, yeah, it depends. Everybody's yeah. methods are different, but um, I, I don't even have my tanks drilled. I just, I just kind of have it. I, after like having them up and running for like almost like eight years, they just kind of, I, I kind of dialed it in, like how much I need and how much I don't. Because when I first put them up, I had too much water going in, and substrate went oh, bad, yeah. and then I kind of figured it out you know so
1: it's kind of like an aquarium park. yeah yeah it's yeah. kind of like getting an aquarium set up getting it cycled yeah. yeah man do you have this is just a, a fun question that has nothing to do with <laughs> what purchases i might be making but uh what's like your your like all-time best you know if i had to pick a dendro you know what's the I'm sure there's probably an episode about that that I could watch.
0: Huh? <laughs> I yeah, I did an episode about I think I, I think it was like top ten beginner species, but it really wasn't dart frog specific. I honestly, if I were to recommend something to someone who was just getting started out, I would probably go with one of the one of the phyllobates species because really, they, okay. yeah, they're they're really big, they're bold, they'll eat pretty much anything because a lot of people who just get started out sometimes have a problem with fruit flies it takes a while to get the momentum going to be able to culture your own fruit flies and oh, like yeah. yeah like some of the smaller species and even like the big tanks a lot of them really won't eat anything much bigger than a hidey so I, mm. I i like phyllobates it's my favorite genus just because they're they're very hardy they're they're bold they're always out and they eat pretty much anything like mine will eat crickets like quarter inch size. Really? Oh yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah. And that's why I think they're great because you don't have to completely rely on fruit flies or at least for the adults. Like I'll order a few hundred crickets, maybe like once every two months or so. And I'll just feed my phyllobates species, like the quarter inch crickets and then everything else gets the fruit flies. And it helps me kind of stretch out the, yeah, yeah.
1: Wow. Wow. Yeah. I didn't think about, maybe they're good species for future (laughs) X-ROM.
0: Yeah, they are pretty big. You could definitely, I mean, of all the dart frog species, that would probably be the biggest one you could start with.
1: Yeah, man. That's so interesting. So you don't breed your own, uh, crickets? The crickets? No.
0: No, too much. They're so smelly. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I, I don't know what, what kind of crickets you guys were using in the lab, but I've been a big fan of banded crickets as opposed to the domestic crickets. Oh yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, they're not as yeah, they're not too bad. Yeah, yeah. They they live a lot longer though, which is nice, and they don't smell as bad as the domestics.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I've never smelled a good smelling cricket, but I've been trying. Now that I'm, you know, in Florida, you can't keep dubias, um, but I'm trying to get a a dubia colony going because I mean, you can get some of the baby dubias are are small. I mean, you can definitely have them smaller than crickets, um, you know, and they can't climb sheer surfaces. So, I'm hoping to get those going to feed the vinegaroon and the Cuban tree frog. But, I mean, the Cuban tree frog will eat literally anything I put in there. <laughs> He's eaten lizards before.
0: Yeah, I, I've I've yeah. seen pictures of them. Yeah, I, <laughs> I've i seen I've seen. Yeah,
1: <laughs> that's not a problem. I know. I know.
0: They're a very intense species.
1: And they're so diverse, you know, in the way, like I've seen some people that have like these little dainty looking Cuban tree frogs and this thing is as far from dainty as you could get. I mean, he's certainly got a very wide mouth.
0: <laughs> yeah. Some of them are just like, like hulks. Like they're just, they, it's weird. Cause they, some of them are just, they, you're right. They're gigantic.
1: They're, yeah. We had one in the collection in Florida that I, you know, it must've been, I mean, five or six inches SVL, like just. Like a beast, you know. It is apparently just collected on the side of like a McDonald's or something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're crazy. Yeah, that's um, always. But happens. yeah, I'm hoping in, in the future to get. I mean, after working with these cane toads, and we also have some preliminary data on tomato frogs. I just, I'd like to keep some more, you know, just show frogs, like just really beautiful um, species, and you know, hard to do better than it's for sure.
0: Oh, definitely. Definitely. Well, Rachel, we're at the end, but I wanted you to just let the listeners know if there's any more they wanted to find out, if they wanted to, you know, go on a website or any resources that you might be able to recommend they check out.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. uh, Unfortunately, I'm in the process of making my website. Um, (laughs) um, But I do have a a Twitter. um, And if anyone has any questions about the paper or wants to chat, like I'm always happy to chat about frogs um in any way um so my email's in the the paper which is on uh the integrative organismal biology website you just i'm mean, sure if you type in xrom uh mechanics and toads it'll come up and my email's there um but yeah i'm really um so happy just to talk on the show about uh my work and definitely if you're interested i'll be hopefully publishing on this um in the future once i'm uh, once I get my, <laughs> my position, wherever I end up being, um, but definitely keep an eye out for more, uh, frog feeding mechanics stuff since I, I mean, like I said, it's just a, a never ending <laughs> fountain of cool ideas and things to test.
0: Yeah. With all that, with the, so many species, I'm sure we'll never run out of possibilities.
1: <laughs> no, I don't think so. Yeah.
0: <laughs> All right, everyone, I want to thank Rachel for taking the time to come on and discuss the paper. Uh, I'm going to include a link to it. It should be in the show description. So if you guys want to check it out, it has uh, everything we've talked about and a lot more. If you want to dive into it a little bit more deeply, obviously read the whole paper. And um, yeah, other than that, I hope you guys enjoyed this. I, I love doing this type of content. It's, it's um, always great to catch a paper just when it comes out. And I love an opportunity to talk to the author of the paper. It was great having Rachel on. And uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it, of course, and I will catch up with you again next time.